When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogel, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. I'm Jeff Shade, and I'm just here to ask the questions, but the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Jeff Vogel, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Hey, Jeff, how you doing today? It's always good to be with you. I'm doing great. Yeah, me too. I hope everybody else is doing well. Calendar says we are in the 9th or 10th of December, depending upon when you're listening to this radio program. So we have a little more than two weeks left before Christmas. Jeff, when you live in Arizona and you live in Tucson and up there in Mason and so forth, does it really seem like the Christmas season because it's warm so much? Well, we're not seeing the Christmas season they do in the North Pole, for example. <laughs> you know, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. or most of the Midwest where you're covered with snow and you're always dreaming of a white Christmas. So I'm dreaming of a day we can go out and have a barbecue and I can smoke some meat for Christmas instead of have the old uh, indoor turkey and presents around the tree. We have a big yard and we love having the grandkids over. We love playing and we love going outside and getting some sunshine. So it's a different kind of Christmas, but I like it better. So, you know, I'm kind of gotten used to that and it's a, it's a beautiful time of year. Yeah, Christmas is not all about Santa Claus and snow and coming down the chimney and all that sort of thing. People certainly should remember what Christmas is all about. So it's all in how you perceive Christmas and how you celebrate it. And certainly we are glad that everybody here has joined us this week for Premier Retirement. We hope that they're having a great Christmas season. Jeff, let's begin talking about certainly a passing that happened this past week. Charlie Munger, who was Warren Buffett's, I guess, partner in investments, has passed away at the age of 99. What do you think we can learn from Charlie Munger? What sort of a guy was he all about? Well, you know, he was uh, a big deal with Berkshire Hathaway. Everybody gives uh, Warren Buffett the credit, but I think uh, either Charlie Munger was a, a really good student or he was kind of the brains behind the operation in a lot of ways. You know, good old traditional investor, liked fundamentals, uh, did well with it. You know, obviously Warren Buffett was uh, in a position uh, to go and make deals and get stock as pay and buy cheap and sell high. And that's why Berkshire Hathaway has such a great reputation. And so he's kind of like in the position of a hedge fund manager where he can do things that a lot of us can't. However, you could always look at their philosophy as, uh, you know, Buffett and Munger together were, you know, making decisions on what to buy, when to buy based on what they were looking forward as the, you know, best long-term stable investment. They didn't do a lot of day trading. Although just in the last year, just in this past year, they raised over $150 billion for cash because they, you know, haven't uh, believed in the traditional values of the market, which actually, you know, indicate that there's got to be fundamentals that support any uptrend that we're uh, seeing and we're not. So, you know, I'm kind of on the same page. I've kind of grown up with more of a traditional value, been doing this 30 years, of course, not even half as long as those guys have, but, you know, long enough to know who the smart money is out there. And those are some of the smart guys that I've always looked to. And, you know, I don't know that uh, Berkshire Hathaway is going to uh, suffer because he's passed because they do have a lot of uh, other uh, chief investment officers that have come along behind him. He, I mean, I don't think he's been actually affecting most of the trades in the last few years anyway, but, uh, you know, he, he does have a place in history as far as one of the uh, gurus of the market that has helped make uh, smart trades and 
you know, if we follow their type of investing, you know, I think we'll do well long-term as well. Again, it's not necessarily the, the type of investing that, you know, day traders would use, certainly. It's not the type of investing that people who want to preserve assets would necessarily uh, jump into. But for money that you can expose to risk and you don't need to use or something you want a dollar cost average in with, even IRA money, you can buy Berkshire Hathaway stock and uh, get the, you know, piece of that ride. So, you know, it's one of those staples of uh, the investment world that's just always been there, always uh, uh, produced well. And although, you know, it does have its, you know, dark days, just like the market does when, you know, things just don't seem to work right. But but again, he was a long-term buy and hold investor. He didn't spend a lot of money. He didn't need to make a lot of money because he wanted to uh, spend it. And he certainly had enough that he doesn't need to go into preservation mode like most of our clients do. But as far as, you know, just a good example of smart investing and not looking to the news for the next hype as far as what to buy. I mean, those guys never bought, and I don't think ever will, even with the new uh, team, you know, growing up underneath the uh, Warren Buffett model, you know, they're not going to get into crypto. They're not going to get into these fake weird eccentric type investments that aren't based on the long-term fundamentals. And you know what, uh, if you look at it just in the last few years, those fundamentals still work. You know, they, they look at trends, they they look at sectors and they they move accordingly to the market. And of course they have eyes kind of on the inside, I'm not calling it insider trading, but I mean, they have, you know, they, they see a much bigger picture than you and I can. And obviously they're, they're one of those uh, go-to people that I've always kind of looked at and say, hey, what are those guys doing? Is it time to get back in the market? Well, they're not, you know, Ray Dalio's not. Stan Druckenmiller's not, you know, some of these guys that, you know, have always managed billions and, and uh, consistently beat the market over time. And some on a year to year basis have never lost money. You know, those are the smart money that, uh, that I try to look, look to. So, you know, I'm sure he'll be missed. I never dialed in to see what Charlie Munger was thinking or whatever, but he always right. had input at, uh, at the meetings. And, you know, we know he was a big part of Berkshire Hathaway and I'm sure he'll be missed. And Jeff, in reading about Charlie Munger, I understand that in college in the army, he developed an important skill, which was card playing. And he used this in his approach to business. What he said is, what you have to do is you have to learn when to fold early when the odds are against you. And if you have a big edge, back it heavily because you don't get a big edge often. Opportunity comes, but it doesn't come often. So season when it does come. He also used the card playing analogy to explain his approach to investing. He maintained that treating the shares of a company like baseball cards is a losing strategy because it requires one to predict the behavior of often irrational and emotional human beings. So what do you think about that card playing strategy? To me, it sort of really hit home. Well, it does. You know, card playing is emotional. I mean, you're doing it hand by hand. It's kind of like day trading. It's kind of the same type of thing. And they weren't day traders. Like I mentioned, their philosophy does not work for day traders. It works for people that have more of a macroeconomic outlook that know that all bad things that happen will pass, but you take opportunities. Right now, you know, Berkshire Hathaway and the Warren Buffett or and Munger, their group are taking more of a sideline approach. They're raising cash. They can't sell everything they own, but they're selling enough to raise billions of dollars in cash so that they'll be in a position to take advantage of that next opportunity when it comes. So, you know, they know that it'll come. They know that they can uh, be patient because, you know, the market for them has been working, shoot, almost 100 years. Charlie Munger was 99. So that's a pretty hefty uh, pile of years that he got to uh, uh, play in the market and learn and hone that skill. And, you know, card playing is probably not the only thing you learn from, but I think the I think the philosophy is good is, you know, you can't let emotions or hype or what you see on the news one day to the next, which is typically propaganda by Wall Street anyway, to manipulate you into selling when they want to buy and manipulate you into buying when they want to sell you their stock at overvalued prices like they're doing right now. And we can see that just by the fact that institutions own far less stock, about a third less stock than the private investor does. Well, why does a private investor who don't have all the information 
have more stock than institutions who have all the information. And institutions, you can call Berkshire Hathaway, you can call uh, you know Warren Buffett an institution. I mean, he's got that many billions under management, and uh, we need to look at and put him in the same same boat. But it's funny because they're selling, but they're still saying that the market's going to be up by the end of 2024, for example, or whatever, to just kind of get us in the idea that oh, we should just hold through whatever happens in the next couple of quarters. But you know, as I mentioned before, there's about uh, six or seven different charts and cycles that we're in that all end in recession and we're just at the brink of that time frame when it all happens. So, you know, if we've got that many enemies to the market staring us in the face, it's time to, you know, hunker down in the bunker and uh, not take any shots, right? So we we just need to uh, have more of a defensive approach right now and uh, let these things uh, play out. But, yeah, you know, those guys were uh, doing the same thing as they're taking more of a defensive approach and, and holding on to those positions that typically will weather the storm. But again, you've got smart money, not doing what uh, the dumb money's doing, and they're doing it for a reason. So we have to look to that. you know, have to look for these you know wiser sources of information. It's not necessarily what they say; it's what they do that matters, and that's what we have to watch. Is what they do. So rest in peace, Charlie Munger. He lived to be ninety nine. I think that Warren Buffett is what Jeff around ninety three or so, right? I don't. I wasn't invited to his last birthday party, so I didn't <laughs> count weren't. the candles. But no, I know. I know he's close. I know they weren't too far apart, as far as generationally speaking. Right, so uh, right. you know, I'm sure they were within about ten years. I, yeah, I think he's in his nineties or something. But they must be yeah. doing something right, taking their bodies. You know what I think they're doing right is they're keeping their minds active because they're keeping involved in stuff. And I think yeah. that's what happens with retirement so often today. And that's why I try to help people see what is your avatar of re- yourself as a retiree. Are you going to do something with it? Or are you going to just uh, relax, watch TV, garden, and die? You know, I mean, but if you've got a nice estate, use it and keep your mind active. Keep doing something. Keep busy. It doesn't have to be in the job or profession you had before you retired, but you don't have to retire from life. You just have to retire from the, uh, you know, that uh, steady paycheck and then live on what you've saved and make it last and then be productive. And the longer you be productive, I think your body reacts accordingly and does what it needs to to keep your uh, body healthy so your mind can continue doing what it keeps trying to do. Good point, Jeff. And Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, we could learn a lot from those. So I invite people to maybe research them a little bit because they really lived very, very good lives. One of the things that they had in common was that with all the money that they've got, they didn't buy big fancy cars and houses and so forth. They really just lived their lifestyle that was the sort of lifestyle that they were comfortable with. And I think that is something to uh, really remember is live within your means. We're talking with Jeff Ogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson and also up in Mesa. If you like our conversation and you'd like Jeff and you want to sit down with Jeff and talk to him about your individual situation, again, no cost, no obligation. Retirement Roadmap is available for you. And to get yours, call 520-780-9059, 520-780-9059. You can do it today. Shelly will get back to you on Monday and set you up with a conversation with Jeff. Also in the news, inflation, Jeff. I understand that we're seeing some deflation now for the first time in three years, paving the way for the Fed's 2% inflation target. Now, I think inflation right now, as I recall, somewhere around 3.4%. Do you think that that means uh, Fed Chair Powell is not going to be raising rates again in December? And do you think there's a possibility of maybe reducing rates after the first of the year? You know, I, I don't know. I think the idea, and I, I've said this before, I said until we have deflation, the inflation isn't going to be under control because we've already had 20 or 30, if you compound it over the last couple of years, of actual inflation. And that still hurts earnings. It still hurts people's pocketbooks. It still hurts what the middle class and the you know lower middle class especially can buy with their limited assets. You know, rich people are still spending money and doing the things and kind of, you know, keeping the economy going. Uh, and fortunately, over the last 10 years, we have a, a much more robust upper middle class and rich uh, class where, you know, people aren't bothered by a lot of this inflation. However, it does affect company earnings.
earnings because there's still a big contingent of the population that can't buy the things that they used to buy. And uh, deflation is going to be a good thing. Now, I don't know if deflation, if, if you count deflation because gas prices are down and food doesn't cost as much to get to the store. So all of a sudden we're seeing, you know, apples go from 179 a pound to 169 a pound. And, you know, that's a considered deflation. I think we have to look at the whole ball of wax here too. And remember that just because there's deflation on, you know, gas and food or whatever, or that interest rates on mortgages because nobody's buying houses, you know, have to come down a little bit just so mortgage companies can at least loan some money uh, to the best investors. Of course, they're going to cherry pick and be picky about, what, you know, who they lend money to. Banks have been real tight-fisted the last couple of years. So if lending or the, the credit cycle eases a little bit, you know, freeing up a little bit of money so people can borrow it and buy things, you know, it may you know increase inflation. But if they keep tight like they are, I don't think there's uh, really anything some of these companies can do. We've got uh, supply chain management has gotten a little bit more in control, mostly because people aren't buying as much because there's a, like I said, a, a large uh, portion of the population that isn't buying what they used to. So we're kind of getting a handle on that. We've got some reasonably good growth GDP wise, you know, not complaining about that. Some of that is, um, you know, inflation related. Some of that is just, you know, revenue related. And some of that is uh, population growth inflated. I mean, shoot, population's growing just if we look at the open borders. I mean, there's you know, more economic growth just by that stuff coming in or the, the you know, all the, the people that are coming to the country uh, legally or illegally or however they're getting here, plus the uh, birth rate. Obviously, that always increases uh, GDP on a natural basis. But, you know, if we look at the real effects of, of the inflation and the monetary tightening that the Fed's been doing, uh, lately. I mean, their goal was to get it under control as quickly as they could. Typically, they overshoot. They may have. I think they're probably in a good place where we can uh, wait and see. I think the market bounced in November because they assumed that, you know, the Fed would, you know, see that, you know, they didn't cause too much uh, grief and everything's going to go back to normal and we're going to have a soft landing or, or no landing at all. And we're off and running again. So I think people had a little bit maybe over exuberance in the idea that the market could go uh, through the roof. You know, if you look at valuations, they're still overvalued. Uh, we're still seeing companies' earnings uh, decrease or we're seeing company stock. And I'll just give you one example, Salesforce. It's a, you know, a client management system. And, uh, you know, they're part of the Dow. It's a big CRM data system for businesses. And, you know, they're expensive. I looked into them and man, I mean, they charge a lot for their uh, services more than anybody, but they do a very, very good job. So, you know, they're selling at like seven or eight times their sales, yet their sales aren't doubling every year. The industry in general is three to four times sales. So, I mean, they're way overpriced. And yet there was this hype, you know, a week or two ago that made the Dow go up you know, more points than it normally does just because of that one stock and maybe a couple others. But, you know, that's one that's been in the news. Well, you know, we've also seen lately a sell-off because people are like, hey, wait a minute, the fundamentals don't justify the price. It should be half what it is and maybe a little more than half what it is, maybe down 30 or 40% to get into the fair market value based on what the coming revenue growth is. And that's what people aren't looking at is they're looking at, oh, well, they had some earnings. So they made more earnings than last year. Well, yeah, last year, everybody's getting hit hard because, you know, we kind of started this inflation thing and people had to regroup, laying off people and, you know, restructuring businesses in, in many ways. And so, yeah, we might have year over year increases, but does that mean they're going to continue to go great guns ahead or does it even justify the prices where stock is? I don't think so. So I think we had a little false sense of security because the Fed didn't raise interest rates. Honestly, I don't know that they have to again, but I think it's been priced into the market, maybe overpriced into the market. So I don't think just because the Fed doesn't raise interest rates, the market's going to go... Um, 
up again. However, I think they have to be very cautious, and they've already said this in their meetings, is that you know they still need to kind of hold tight for a long. They might have not have more increases, but they're not even suggesting rate decreases for a year. That's what the Fed says. Now, could they happen? Yes, I think they very well could happen, especially if these economic indicators that uh, typically end in a, a recession. And you know, we've seen companies like Spotify. You mentioned earlier when we were just chatting before the show. You know, laying off what was it, seventeen thousand people? Seventeen uh, percent of their workforce. Not sure what the number 17, is. Seventeen percent of the workforce. I mean, that's that's a lot of people. I mean, Spotify is not a small company. I'm sure they have more than uh, 100 employees and letting 17 of them go. But even oh, yeah. still, that's a pretty big chunk. When you look at you know companies that charge 10 or 12 bucks for their services and people are dropping them so that they have to actually reduce employment, that doesn't make me think that the you know, economy is really in that great a health. So if we are going to go into some sort of a recession, that may be an indication where the Fed goes, uh-oh, okay, we're fixing this uh, problem. We've got some deflation now. We're going into recession. We've got to start uh, pumping some money back in the economy. Got to loosen up and uh, you know quit tightening, but actually start dropping interest rates on a Fed level. And that could happen in the next couple of quarters. Some banks are claiming that it will, but I don't think that happens unless we go into recession, which of course, economic indicators and a lot of the charts that I've been talking about, the long-term and short-term yield curve is inverted. And guess what? It's uninverting right now. The recessions always happen when it either uninverts or starts to uninvert by big numbers. And we had that last month. So, you know, does that mean, okay, we're ready in the next month or two to, you know, have this recession that uh, has always happened uh, based on that? And if we do, I think we could see some Fed loosening earlier than the end of next year, which is what they said they'd wait at least that long, as long as things maintain, you know, where they are right now. I just don't think that they will. I still think that there's going to be some sort of a shakeout because, I don't know, I, I just become a historian in the last 30 plus years and uh, history tends to always repeat. Uh, equilibrium always seems to be found in the markets. I think there's still some work to do to get us uh, where people aren't overspending spending on stock and equities at the level that they are, especially when companies aren't growing at the rate that they used to, when the economy was growing and all these industries had uh, increased earnings. I mean, you know, they, they still have to borrow money at a much higher level. You know, a lot of them are burning through all their cash. There's not a lot of extra cash laying around. So now they have to borrow to keep their companies afloat. And we're going to start seeing a year or so after these, you know, inflation tightening measures that have gone into place happen. It typically takes a, a year or a year and a half before they, we start seeing the effects of that happening. And we're starting to see one now. The deflation. Well, deflation is not necessarily a healthy economic indicator. It means that things are getting tight and things are slowing down. So we may see the cycle that I've been talking about and that a lot of other people have been talking about. The reason I'm talking about it is because smart people are talking about it. I'm believing that'll still happen. So again, if we have a recession or even a soft or hard landing, we're going to probably see some loosening. But here's the rub with that is you have loosening, you put more money in the economy and people bid things up again because there's uh, more access to money. And, you know, some of the companies have kind of tightened the supply chain to fix, even though it's fixed right now, kind of fix the supply and demand curve to where it's operating somewhat efficiently now for the first time in about three or four years. And um, then they loosen and then there's all this pent up demand that comes out and says, oh, yeah, we can borrow money at uh, 3%. I want to finally build my house or, hey, there I, I can finally buy a house. And, you know, properties come down a little bit because people are desperate to sell because the economy is not doing too well. And then the Fed starts lowering interest rates. And then guess what happens? We have this inflation problem again. And so I think there's going to be a couple of cycles where, you know, the Fed's going to kind of overreact. Like, I think they may have overreacted a little bit too fast. Maybe not. You know, I think they just started too late, to be honest with you. I think uh, if they would have started a year earlier and uh, raised interest rates to 5% over two and a half or three years instead of a year, year and a half, I think we would have been in much better shape. And a lot of the companies could have managed to, um, you know, figure out how to, you know, raise revenue, change their cost structures, uh, 
you know, purchasing and other things that would have uh, kind of helped them, you know, weather the storm a little bit better. But bottom line is there's still some companies, of course, the Magnificent Seven or the, what used to be Fang Stocks, those big companies are still, they own the market share and they still get the lion's share of all the business. And, you know, they're not going out of business. They're still blue chip stocks, but they're, you know, they're kind of riding that roller coaster too a little bit. But um, small cap companies are actually coming up. But there's, you know, across the board, 500 stocks in the S&P 500, more than half of them aren't doing well or are down, still not up this year. So we've got, you know, this divided market that, I know, just shows us that things aren't quite as rosy as I think the news that we're hearing wants to paint the picture for. I think this deflation is kind of a good sign that this cycle is finally working itself out and doing what it's supposed to do. I just hope that the Fed doesn't get too aggressive in the rate decreases because it'll just uh, exacerbate the inflation problem again and we'll go back into that an- another cycle. I think, you know, they've got a hard job. You know, they're, they're more reactionary than uh, preventative, unfortunately. And, you know, we'll just see what happens. But I think they'll probably hold off in December like you, uh, the question that you originally asked was, I think they'll hold off in December. That has already been priced in the market. I don't think there's a lot of upside in the market that is supported by any fundamentals. We just had the markets kind of retraced to the level that they hit in August before they went down for a couple of months. And they hit kind of that resistance line and they've, they've bounced back and been soft since then. So, you know, we really haven't seen what I would say a breakout in the market where people are so excited about the market that they're going to buy, you know, regardless of fundamentals. It seems like some of the charts and some of the things that normally indicate where markets will go up to and when they will reverse and the trend lines are still intact. So what I mean by all that is I'm not seeing anything that I'm surprised with. We always have bear market rallies. We had one, we had one in November, but we're still below where we were two years ago. And you know, we still got to get out of you know these cycles that uh, just haven't manifested themselves yet based on all these interest rate hikes that do come back to affect the economy and company earnings in a negative way. So I still am in, in the side of uh, caution. I mentioned earlier, you know, so is Warren Buffett, Munger, and all those other guys. The smart, smart money is still by and large on the sideline and betting on some sort of a decline in stocks over the next uh, couple of quarters. And then uh, probably the election cycle will take hold. And between that and the fact that the Fed might lower interest rates uh, sometime next year, uh, we'll probably look like we have a reasonably healthy market going into the election like we always do because it's just kind of a cycle that happens and we might have some better buying opportunities uh, next year. But I don't think we should be too excited about the fact that uh, the Fed's not raising interest rates anymore. I think uh, they stopped at a good time and I think they'll probably hold out to, at least for a little while until there's something bad happens that you know forces their hand and makes them have to lower the interest rates. And mortgage interest rates have come down too. I mean, they were north of 8% at one time. Now they're about in the middle, I think around 7.5% and heading down from there. And I think you said Taylor, uh, your son Taylor is in that business, right? Well, he's actually managing portfolios of real estate. So, I mean, he he does get money from institutions at a much lower rate than that uh, to invest in properties, but they're not buying right now. They're actually trying to raise rents to keep their market caps up to keep up with the inflation and keep up with the uh, current interest rates. They're having a hard time doing that. I mean, when you have portfolios I mean, we're talking billion-dollar billion portfolios. And uh, yeah, he's a CPA and he does some financial management and, uh, you know, portfolio analysis and things like that. And, you know, they've got money from big companies like LaSalle and uh, I think it's BlackRock or one of those big ones. But they're having to raise rent rates and they've got a huge problem with vacancies because people can't afford the rents because of inflation. So they've got kind of this balancing act that they're going through right now. And if interest rates don't come down to make uh, these companies that loan them money to buy portfolios of homes for them, and by the way, the institutions want to own every residential property on the planet, if not the U.S. So that's their goal. They're trying to buy them up. They're willing to overpay because if they can control the housing market, man, they're kings, right? Then that's like the old, in the old kingdoms, there was a king and they had all the property. And if you were lucky, you could live on it or uh, be a servant and earn your way. But I mean, I don't know if that's really how far they want to take it, but it's kind of the, the same uh, philosophy. I hope it doesn't happen. I think my son's a little bit 
when he finally figured out what product he's uh, serving, <laughs> and that is out of the process of the, the value system that he's serving, he's not really comfortable with it. He'll probably be joining my firm pretty soon. I've always kind of waited till he got that real world yeah. experience and come in full time. He dabbles in it now, but he might be full time when they uh, finally get done with his portfolio building and you know sell off and and they can uh, take their profits and run. He's got a, a nice little equity stake in there. But bottom line is, yeah, they're not seeing interest rates even close to the level where they can operate and borrow money and buy. They're trying to manipulate, you know, rents and things for the portfolios that they own in order to uh, create profits. And it's backfiring on them because the vacancy rate keeps going up when people's leases expire. So if interest rates don't come down, those portfolio managers are going to struggle. They're not going to get out of their, you know, investments like they thought they would. And they're certainly not keeping up with the demands of uh, what the higher interest rate climate requires. So yeah, it's a it's it's an interesting market that we're in. I do think we have to have some sort of a reset, and I think it'll hit housing as uh, well as the market. It'll hit uh, people's pocketbooks. Then are hit, then it's being hit now, and it's not because I'm a fearmonger. I it's just there are cycles that always repeat. There's good and bad times. The cycles happen. So let's just deal with it and let's ride them out. Let's just get through them and not be stupid during the cycles and take too much risk or be greedy because the market goes up 6 or 8% in a month, even though it was down 10 or 15 the two prior months. It's still barely back to even. I guess it did get kind of back to even from where it was just a couple months ago, but it's still not back to even from, if we look at uh, all the, the indexes uh, combined, we're, we're still down. So, you know, we have to keep that in mind and uh, until a lot of things change, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. And I think we need to be uh, defensive and smart. You're listening to Premier Retirement with Jeff Fogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson and also up in Mesa. If you've liked what you've heard today and you want to get in and sit down with Jeff, of course, offering a no cost, no obligation retirement review, you can get yours by calling 520-780-9059. No cost, no obligation for this friendly conversation to ask your questions of Jeff. 520-780-9059. You can also request it online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, time for a break. We've got listener questions next when our show continues here on 790 KNST Tucson's Most Stimulating Talk. You can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan. And you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan and Jeff Shea. Thank you so much for joining us here for Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan on 790 KNST. And it is the holiday season. We hope you're having a great one so far. Remember, if you've missed any part of the program today or you want to hear it all over again, we're a podcast. All you've got to do is go to wherever you get your podcasts and search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. You will find this show and all of our past shows so that you can stay on top of your wealth and your journey towards retirement. In the fourth part of the show today, Jeff, we're going to be talking about the case of the week. Normally, we talk about it a little bit earlier. Earlier, but we had a lot to talk about, so that will be coming up after our listener questions. Okay, listener questions, let's kick it off this week with Beverly in Tucson. Beverly writes, I'm 67 years old, singled, and retired at 66. After taxes, I received $3,100 a month from a pension, and after taxes, my Part B Medicare payment, I also received $2,100 a month from Social Security, so around $5,200. I have approximately $100,000 in mutual funds, savings accounts, and a half million dollars in my 401k account. I'm able to live comfortably on the $5,200 that I receive monthly from my pension and Social Security, barring anything catastrophic. My pension and Social Security meet my basic needs and expenses, so I don't plan to tap into my 401k account 
out until I'm 72 and required to do so. There's not much left over for anything fun. However, as I have two adult children, one grandchild with one on the way, extra money tends to go in their direction. Join the club there, Beverly. My question is, I own a home worth about $300,000 and pay a monthly mortgage of $900. I have $57,000 remaining on the mortgage. I have a seven-year mortgage at 2.65% that I refinanced in 20, so five years remaining. Should I pay off my house with the savings I have or continue to pay the mortgage until I ultimately have to move to a house with no more stairs? Kind of a long question, Jeff, but what do you think based on what she said? Well, first one thing glaring, you can wait till age 73 to take uh, money out. You don't have to leave it in your 401k, by the way, as far as the required minimum distribution. So you've got five, six years before you have to worry about that. It's really kicking the can down the road. What I would look at is, yeah, you may not want to do anything that, you know, is, uh, you know, requires you to use more money now and you want to just defer it. But, you know, that 401k or IRA money, if you're single, you've got a high tax bracket, your uh, 12 or 15 tax bracket, you know, runs out about the 40 or $50,000 income level, you know, before deductions and things like that. So I would say if you want to stay in a low tax bracket, maybe don't kick the can down the road, take a little bit more money out now while we kind of got taxes on sale, you might want to even convert some of that, pay taxes now and never pay tax again, either do some Roth conversion. So you don't have to take that money out at 72 or 73 uh, as, it, as it really is. But you know, then you could take it out tax-free and it doesn't affect your uh, you know, tax bracket. So you can control what you pay in taxes over the next 30 or so years depending on how long you live, if you're in good health, I mean, you might go to 100 or more. So, you know, keep in mind, I mean, you're not at a point where I would think any of these uh, savings accounts or IRA distributions are going to push you into a higher Part B Medicare payment amount. I hope you have a supplement for that. But I, I would see that most of your money sounds like it's kind of rainy day and fun money. So depending on the type of risk you want to take or how much, how risk averse you are, maybe you totally are cool with risk and maybe you want to, you know, be in the market or maybe you want to be in something that goes up when the market goes up, but doesn't lose money when the market goes down and you want to be in a more of a tax favorable type of an account. So I would look at the fixed index annuities that leverage your interest at today's interest rates. You can lock in some really good returns on some of these annuities that are out there that leverage indexes, still give you enough liquidity for those extra expenses uh, that you need here and there to send the kids on a vacation or help them with a down payment on a house or whatever. And you can also uh, know that it's not going backwards and it'll be there for you if, you know, some of these things that might come up. What I would consider is, you know, that's kind of like your long-term care money or maybe the equity that you have in your house could be your future long-term care money, either through reverse mortgage or like you said, downsizing or just selling and letting that be the way you pay your way. But you can either increase your income on a tax favorable basis by, you know, structuring a tax plan where you pay taxes at a lower rate for longer rather than a a lower rate now and a higher rate later. So I would look at the whole thing. I would actually encourage you probably to spend a little bit of money. I would not encourage you to pay off the house because it's a 2.65 and hopefully you're invested at more than that on all your their interest, even in the bank. And uh, if you've got mutual funds, depending on what they're doing, you might have some risk there. Maybe you don't like the risk and maybe you use that $100,000 to pay that off just to be give you that peace of mind. 2.65 isn't a bad rate for a mortgage. And it seems to me in today's interest rate environment, you should be able to make more on that money you know, on your taxable account or your after-tax account, I should say the 100000 as well as the money in the 401k. So, uh, which in my opinion, you should move to an IRA and self-direct it so you don't have the restriction that 401ks uh, typically offer. And that is you don't have principal protected accounts. You don't have insured accounts. You don't have tax favorable accounts. You, you need to roll that to an IRA, maybe do some Roth conversions to a Roth IRA and uh, use some of the available options that are outside of the realm of Wall Street 
who would love to keep your money till you die, but uh, make a plan that's a little bit more tax efficient. Maybe even bump your uh, income level from 5,200 to 6,200 or 7,000 a month and know that you can buy a more expensive steak when you go to the store or ride first class when you travel to see your kids or, you know, not worry about taking the grandkids to Disneyland and wondering how it's going to affect your future budget. If you structure a plan that uh, guarantees the principal from loss and guarantees you some extra income, uh, you might uh, get a little padding that'll help you during, you know, future inflation, which is obviously going to happen at what rate we don't know, but we assume it's going to come down eventually down to that two or three range or less, hopefully, uh, in the future. And you you can still keep up with that with your Social Security and your investments. So there's opportunities for a more comprehensive plan here, but I think you need to look at your taxes. I think you look at, need to look at the opportunity costs of uh, what you're missing out on in the 401k that you could do in your uh, self-directed IRAs and uh, make sure that you don't kick the can down the road too long on the required minimum distributions that are going to happen at age 73 to the point where it ends up, you know, hitting you upside the head with taxes and making you regret not having spent a little bit of that money earlier when you're in your go-go years and uh, can still do a lot of fun stuff. So I don't have a problem with you spending money now while you're healthy and living a little tighter to the vest, uh, you know, on your budget when you're in your 90s and, you know, not doing as much. So that's my take on that question. Appreciate it and uh, hope you enjoy the book. Beverly, thank you so much for listening to us. As Jeff said, we will send you out his book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Our next question comes from Bernard in Rancho Vistoso. Bernard writes, I make $75,000 a year from my regular job from which taxes are withheld. In this last year, I've developed some side hustles and estimate that those will add another $55,000 to my income. The taxes are not withheld. I'm told that I'll owe a lot in taxes because I'm a sole proprietor moving forward. Is there any way to account for the additional taxes owed and do something like incorporating? What's your opinion? Well, incorporating, I use, I use corporations and LLCs to structure tax favorable situations any way I can. Now, some of the things that you can do in corporations is typically they have higher audit flag levels so you can get away with some income. I don't think you're at that point where you have to worry about it. But there are certain things that you can deduct from a corporation that really don't look good on a Schedule C or a, a self-employed taxable situation where you're either getting 1099 income or that side hustle cash. Now, if there's some under the table cash, you're still supposed to declare that obviously. And uh, whether you do or don't, that's up to you and the IRS and whatever happens there. But, um, you know, if this is some side hustles where companies are 1099 you commissions and things like that, that's going to be reported to the IRS. So you have to adjust for that. Now, if you pay quarterly taxes and let's say, you know, based on your income, you're, you know, you are hitting that 22 bracket right now, 25 later uh, when the Trump tax cuts go away, depending on how much longer you're going to work. But uh, that $55,000, you know, a fourth of that, or you're going to be looking at probably twelve dollars or $13,000 in federal taxes. And the other thing is, is on that money, you have to pay Social Security tax on it from both sides. So you've got to pay, you know, your half and the employer's half, which, you know, makes your tax bracket go up to, you know, somewhere in the 40% range. Oh, and then there's Medicare tax. That's another 3%. So try to get as much as you can written off of that 55000 Like, uh, you know, if it requires a truck, buy a truck. You can write the whole thing off, get some tax deductions that way, and maybe you don't pay extra taxes on that money. So you can write a lot off through a corporation, a separate entity. You can even do it on a Schedule C on your personal tax return. That's not enough money probably to be a big audit issue unless you, you know, really fudge things on your, you know, taxes and take write-offs of silly things that you don't typically get written off. But 
If you want to write off silly things that don't typically get written off, do a C-Corp. I think you can write off more different things off the top line through a C-Corp than anything. But by doing that, you have to file another tax return. It might not be worth it. But I would talk to a CPA that knows a little bit more about taxes and you know how you be taxed on each entity and the type of deductions that you can get from each entity before that uh, income actually shows up as your income. Jeff, could he simply just withhold more from his regular job to account for the taxes that he would owe on his side hustle? Yeah, he could. You know, honestly, I don't. <laughs> I don't withhold taxes. I don't pay quarterlies. I mean, I'm. Okay. Yep, I'm guilty because I'm okay paying the penalty because the penalty isn't as much as I make on that money. Okay. So it's not illegal to withhold taxes. You just have to play by the rules of if okay. you don't, and that is, you know, taxes and penalties. So it's kind of up to you. If this side hustle money, if if paying twelve or fifteen thousand dollars in taxes during the year, and you only net forty, but you could actually invest that extra fifteen thousand dollars in another gig and increase your income to sixty or seventy, that would be a better investment than the thousand bucks that the IRS. Is is going to charge you for uh, additional interest because you didn't withhold your taxes on a quarterly or a regular basis during the year. So those are choices that you can make. Again, I just, I let the math be dictate my decisions. If I'm not making any money on my investments, I'm going to pay the IRS early. If I'm making more money on the investments and the IRS is going to charge me to, you know, keep my money till it's actually due next year, then I'm going to do that. But again, that's, uh, that's my take. Some people aren't comfortable with that. I'm very comfortable with that. I just think I can do more with my money than the IRS does. So Bernard, I think you should certainly consult your CPA, make the best decision you can. We appreciate you listening to us there in Rancho Vistoso. And of course, we're going to be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Next question is Charles listening to us in Oral Valley. And Charles writes, I'm 64 and have been retired for two years. My wife is 60 and plans to retire at 62. I recently decided to move on from my financial advisor and I'm self-managing the part of my portfolio that they were managing. The planner created a portfolio of 131 individual stocks and seven ETFs. About 120 of the stocks pay a dividend. Why own so many stock positions? Why not just buy ETFs that hold positions in the stocks? Well, it depends on what the stocks are. You know, ETFs are typically sector-based, and so you'd have to buy a lot of ETFs. You'd end up owning thousands of stocks. If you want true diversification, you're kind of indexing, and that's fine. Costs a lot less money to do so. You know, there might be a reason that these 120 stocks are maybe 20 stocks out of five different sectors, and maybe they weight up and down those stocks. Maybe they have a business model and a chief investment officer that is really good on looking at the fundamentals of each stock, and they don't like to have every stock in biotech as you would have in an ETF. And maybe in history, they've they've beat the market. I don't know. There's several reasons why you don't want only 10 stocks in your portfolio, and that is, you know, if you know two or three of them go bust, I mean, it takes a big, it makes a big hit on your portfolio. If two or three stocks go bust in 120 or even 10 stocks, you're you're not looking at a big. We're talking about the principle of diversification here, so it depends. If you like stocks, yeah, it's not always the more the merrier, but 120 is a lot less stocks than the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000. It's about the same as a you know Nasdaq 100 or something, but it depends on why they're playing that stock and if it's really just chasing dividends. Maybe there's 120 that uh, pay better than 5% dividends and, you know, you can find them in the S&P and their blue chip stocks and, you know, they can watch them easily. So maybe that is the rationale. I'm not going to try to uh, disrespect uh, you or your financial advisor without, you know, knowing more of the picture. But if you're self-managing and doing well, keep doing it. You know, sometimes uh, advisors have what's called cookie cutter plans where they just pick the biggest 120 stocks in the S&P 500 and you have the individual stocks and, you know, more of a, a blue chip, big cap, large cap, mid cap at the worst case type of a portfolio. Well, that's not necessarily diversification either if you don't have some small caps, emerging markets and some of those things that, you know, could also enhance a portfolio over time. So again, it depends on what your time horizon is. Looks like you're ready to retire right now. Honestly, if you want uh, the same type of an ETF 
managed type portfolio, the principal protected accounts that we use that are insured and secured are leveraging those indexes, which mirror what the ETFs do. And uh, they can leverage them one or two or sometimes three to one as far as what the uh, ETF does. So like if an ETF makes 5% on average, but it's got really low risk because it's really well diversified, you know, some of these insurance companies are able to take interest that they make on your money, leverage it with options and actually get you two or three times what that ETF or that sector of the market might get. And what they do is they rotate between the different sectors of the market, depending on how the markets act. In the last couple of years, now there's only been one sector that's even done well, and that's only, well, energy for a minute uh, here and there, and then the, the stock market for a minute here and there. But you know, if you look at all the different sectors, I mean, you could diversify into a bunch of ETFs and do worse than you know picking 120 stocks possibly. So again, look at the whole picture. You know, we have uh, different plans. The ETF market, when you play indexes, we like doing them in index annuities or LERPs. And then, you know, when it comes to the managed part of the money, the part that we have at risk, we will rotate, you know, in a similar fashion, either to ETFs or, you know, in some cases, pick stocks. I mean, there's some stocks that are in sectors that are very undervalued that have price earnings races of 10 when their peers have price earnings races of between 25 and 40. And these companies are growing just as fast. They're kind of overlooked or maybe they're not bought by institutions or there was maybe something that happened that made them nervous. They sold off a big portion. They haven't bought them back yet. But there's opportunities that you might want to get what I would call fair priced or underpriced value stocks that still could be blue chips that you might want to wait a little higher on. You know, there's some that have really low price earnings ratios and really high dividends too. And, you know, you can look at, you know, building a portfolio of maybe top 20 stocks and a couple of ETFs to, to back it rather than 120 stocks and seven ETFs. I mean, it sounds to me like you've just got a bunch of, a lot of stuff and it'll probably track the market and be correlated pretty close to what the market does. So if that's what they're trying to accomplish, they probably did that for a fee. You could do that yourself without a fee or, you know, you could diversify into different areas of uh, investment vehicles that uh, might help you as well. Charles, thanks for listening to us in Oro Valley. And of course, we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. If you got a question you'd like us to answer on the air, you can get it to us by going to the website, premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com, and sending it to us from there. And of course, we will send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead, if we use it on the air. Or if you just want that book, you don't have to send in a question. You can simply go there and request it at premret.com, or you can give us a call, 520-780-9059, and say, hey, Shelly, send me out Jeff's book. I want to read that thing. And while you're at it, request your no-cost, no-obligation, no-judgment financial review with Jeff there at Premier Retirement. Great opportunity for you to sit down, sort of a community service that Jeff is offering. No cost, no obligation. He's there to answer your retirement questions to put you on a path towards a prosperous retirement. Once again, that number to call to get in and sit down with Jeff, 520-780-9059. Now, we've got about three weekends left till the end of the year. Why not do it this weekend to set yourself up so at the beginning of the year, you're on the right path? Again, no cost and no obligation for that. 520-780-9059 is the number to call. Call this weekend, leave your information, and Shelly will give you a call back on Monday. 520-780-9059 or online at primret.com. Jeff, we've held the case of the week till right now. So what is your case of the week this week? Well, I must have ran on a little bit too long in the first section then, huh? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) A little bit. You got a lot to talk about there. So yeah, we'll just bump it over to here. (laughs) Right on. Yeah, this is a typical uh, situation I see quite often. Uh, You know, it it kind of involves a little bit of tax planning and also some uh, just restructuring assets into 
like uh, what would I say, a peace of mind type, uh, an asset class. These people are in their late seventies and they're, uh, you know, just, he's been managing his money for, you know, 15, almost 20 years now and doing a pretty good job of it. He did uh, get uh, presented with an annuity opportunity a few years ago and found out that he could create uh, some income. He and his wife could uh, both create some income from annuities. They had about I think somewhere up, uh, upwards of about $1.8 million in total assets, not including their house that they had to invest. Most of it was in the market. Didn't like all the risk. And so they liked the idea of putting about, you know, five dollars $600,000 into uh, some annuities that would guarantee against principal loss and also uh, generate some income. Now, they did this before the market started getting all wacky with COVID and the last couple of years and so forth. And uh, he's tried to navigate the storm by, you know, going to cash and going to bonds and trying to uh, maneuver through these uh, weird markets. And he's found out he's not really done very well. In fact, instead of uh, growing his estate, he's uh, lost a little bit of money and says, you know what, I'm just tired. I just want to give, I just want to have peace of mind and sleep. You know, I've got about six or $700,000 in after-tax money that I get dividends on, the dividends and profits. Even when you're losing money, the dividends still are taxable, even if the stocks go down. So he had about twenty-eight or $30,000 in taxes from that. He has income from uh, Social Security of about 60 between them. And then these annuities that they turned on for income, there's another 40, almost 50. So there's about 110,000 there. And then they take profits, uh, you know, the dividends and profits off of their brokerage accounts, a little bit of money in the bank that they're making. So they're, they're living about 130, 140, and sometimes they have to tap some interest. They do have some Roth uh, IRAs as well. So this is kind of how the structure is. They've got about 300 in managed accounts uh, in regular IRAs. They've got uh, approximately... 300 in uh, Roth IRA. So it's about split pretty much even, about 600 there and another $600,000 between, you know, brokerage managed accounts and then $100,000 in savings. So roughly lined out. So, you know, not really that diversified because everything's either in the market or in these annuities. They like the idea of annuities. I said, you know, I said, you're paying tax on the entire amount of profits. I says, what about putting those uh, Roth IRAs into something that would continue to grow tax-free that you could always have, get your hands on that money. You have to take the RMDs out of those IRAs anyway. Why don't you continue to do the same thing that you did already with other IRA money and create a little bit of additional income? And uh, it came down that they would rather just let that be their growth money. And they, they wanted to, they said, well, can we do income with the Roths? And I said, yeah. He says, you mean we could do the same thing with the money that we put from our IRA that we're paying tax on and do the same thing and get tax-free income on a guaranteed basis, even if those assets don't perform. I said, absolutely. So that was kind of where we ended up going and uh, increased their income by another $40,000 a year in actually about $30,000 a year in uh, just the income from those Roth IRAs by using uh, income plans on uh, fixed index annuities. Now, these index annuities are based on about an 8% rate of return if you look back in history because the way that they're leveraged on today's interest rates, you know, if we could have got 5% interest on new money 10 years ago, you'd have made about 12 or 15% on your money, which is better than the market average over the last 10 years. So these have some really good potential, especially if you buy now. If you bought two, three years ago when interest rates were 2%, you'd still look back and say, oh, well, I have a potential of making six or seven. So, you know, they're they're coming in with some pretty reasonable expectations. You know, it's promising that their principal would be able to be maintained and they'd continue to get that uh, tax-free income to boost their income and not push them into another high tax bracket. Now, what about this brokerage assets that's spitting off about 30000 in taxable income? And that's if they don't sell stock at a profit and have extra capital gain stocks. They're typically just using some of the, uh, maybe some ETF money or what the mutual funds are spinning off as, uh, you know, trading profits, and then they're using their, uh, their dividends. What if we put of that 600, maybe four or 500,000 in what's called a single premium immediate annuity that, and, and we, we decide on the number $400,000 and that would generate roughly $30,000 a year for the next 20 years. So, you know, at today's interest rates, you can get almost $600,000 back off of, off of a $400,000 investment, you know, for the rest of their lives. And that is a way to 
minimize taxes. What am I saying about that? So that 30,000 they were paying tax on, all of their money, instead of paying taxes on that, what they're doing is they're only paying tax on the exact proportion of those 20 years of payment. So they're going to pay tax on $8,000 of the 30. So we increased them with 30 plus thousand dollars in Roth money, tax-free income, and another $30,000 that only cost them $8,000 in taxes. So they're paying $8,000 in taxes on an additional sixty-two dollars or $63,000 a year. If you ask me, that's a lot lower than 25% tax bracket, right? If you look at that. So again, they're only paying taxes on $8,000, not $8,000 in taxes. That's $8,000 of taxable income. So they're really only paying about $2,000 in taxes on the extra $60,000 in income at a 25% tax bracket. So what we did is we increased their income from about $130,000 to close to $200,000, yet their taxable income is still in the $130,000 to $140,000 range. So if they're still paying tax on the same amount, they still have about a $20,000 a year tax liability, but instead of spending $130,000 a year, now they're spending $180,000 a year if they want to. They don't even know what to do with the extra $50,000, but it maintains their total net worth in the $2 million range you know, throughout the rest of their life. If we only earn reasonably, well, I would say very conservative estimates under historical um, averages of two to five, maybe 7% on the upside of the most aggressive account. So, you know, we haven't used big numbers. I think over the, the next 30 years, they'll average good rates of return. And because so much of their money is principal protected, they don't have to worry about the risk of volatility in the sequence of returns that I talk about from time to time on the, uh, the radio show here, where sequence of returns is more important than the average rate of return. If you don't have losses, then the average rate of return actually means something. Average rate of return means nothing if you're going to lose 50% in you know, the next market crash and have five or six years to build it back while you're spending money. So again, this is a more sensible, in my opinion, sensible and reasonable and responsible way to live on your life's work, not worry about running out of money, having more income than you had before, and not raising your tax liability one bit. So actually, they lowered their tax liability by about their taxable income actually went down probably by about $20,000 of taxable income per year. So their actual taxes probably went down four or 5000 from what they were spending. Good case of the week, Jeff. And of course, I know that our listeners are always interested in saving on taxes. So if you'd like to get in and sit down with Jeff and talk about your individual situation as it applies to those taxes, again, that number 520-780-9059, 520-780-9059. Request your no-cost, your no-obligation financial review. Not going to cost you a dime. And we do have a number of appointments that are available to us till the end of the year. Once again, 520-780-9059. Call it this weekend, leave your information, and leave a good telephone number, and Shelly will give you a call back on Monday. If you're just joining us, this is Premier Retirement with Jeff Fogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. And all I can say is that you have missed a very, very robust show today. Remember, we're on the air every Saturday at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 1 p.m. here on 790 KNST, and also on Sunday at 11 a.m. And if those are not convenient for you, once again, we are also a podcast. Go to wherever you get your podcast, search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan. You'll find this show and all of our past shows so you can stay on top of your wealth and your journey towards retirement. Well, Jeff, we're out of time for this week. I want to thank you for your time. But as I do every week, I want to thank the fine people here in the greater Tucson area for joining us. For Jeff Ogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend, a safe one. And we'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk.
Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage, Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy, and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered.